This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Matt, what are you wearing? What do you mean? I'm wearing a hoodie and a Batman t-shirt. Correct answer for the Oscar red carpet during a pandemic. Great. Um, (laughs) This is our Oscar episode. We'll get to that. I have a follow-up from last time. From our last episode, we talked about the Muppets. Mm Mm-hmm. Except what we didn't really talk about were the Muppets. Our conversation was so sort of focused on the guests per episode. Okay. And I, I don't, we didn't really get into the Muppets themselves. Uh, um, and yeah, I, okay. All right. I mean, Fair enough. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You, we didn't, I mean, we know, didn't break um, them down. We weren't like, okay, Fozzie. Okay. Let's talk about Ralph. Okay. But we did, you know, we talked about them and. I do feel, I feel like we talked around them and I, you know, knowing. I feel like I know the answer to this, but like I don't—I never explicitly asked you who your favorite Muppet was. Oh, it's Gonzo. Okay. Yeah, I said that in the episode. Oh, you did? Yeah. I was drunk. <laughs> I think you know. I probably, I probably said it in the context of when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But Gonzo is still my favorite uh, Muppet. Yeah. Animals, pretty close. I love Animal quite a bit, and. Although Kermit has never been my favorite, he has kind of creeped up recently just because I think he's just like the perfect straight man. I think he's just so perfectly calibrated for that. What about you? Who are your favorite Muppets? <laughs> um, I do I do enjoy Sam the Eagle quite a bit. Like his, like that character's shtick will never, never get old. He's just constantly put upon and, and sort of depressed and disappointed in what's happening yeah <laughs> uh, which is a wavelength i can i can get on um i did learn after the fact that there was apparently a um a how to tell jokes the font the the fozzy way i almost said fonzy how to tell <laughs> jokes the fozzy way or, or something like a, like a, a videotape that i used to rent a lot as a little little kid i don't have any real memory of it mm-hmm but apparently I was quite a fan. We also didn't talk about Sesame Street, uh, other than mentioning that that was the stepping stone for Henson to do The Muppet Show. But was that something that you watched when you were little? Yeah, it was. I have no memory of it. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I don't remember any particular bits or songs. My my few real Muppet, um, my few real Sesame Street memories are more tied to follow that bird and even those are pretty like i just the image of big bird painted blue in the cage singing is so like so sad so sad that's kind of stuck in my head and also um my parents had taped raiders of the lost ark off of hbo uh, and they taped over follow that bird so i don't know at what point in follow that bird oscar does the patent speech in front of the american flag but that is like that was for like 10 seconds at the beginning of the tape and then <laughs> it goes into the, the jungle at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Are you yeah. going to introduce the boys to Sesame Street? Because now it's um, on HBO. Yeah, now, no, right? abso- absolutely not. I think we're only going to be sort of uh, exposing them to uh, the strictest like VeggieTales, you know, Christian edutainment. Sure. Okay, makes yeah. sense. <laughs> no, um, I've already uh, a couple of times gone downstairs from, you know, to get uh, a drink or 
go to the bathroom during a work day. They're both kind of like in their little playpen and Sesame Street's on TV and Sandra's like, I just needed a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no judgment there. No judgment there. No, not at we, all. We all love uh, Sesame Street and the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meg showed me yeah. a clip today of Ian McKellen teaching Cookie Monster about restraint. Nice. Yeah. Didn't um, work out. He did eat the cookie at the end. Of course. I have sort of, you know, anytime a, a contemporary celebrity shows up on Sesame Street, they, you kind of, you know, those viral videos do the rounds. Like, um, Oh, yeah. Uh, someone sent me, because they knew what we were rewatching The Sopranos, sent me the clip of uh, James Gandolfini talking about getting scared and like that nightmare that he keeps having. And then another one of uh, the guys who play um, Polly and... Bobby or Big Pussy, but either way, do, like playing, they were themselves as actors playing Bert and Ernie in some sort of film or video that Bert and Ernie were directing. So Bert and Ernie were giving them notes on how to be Bert and Ernie. And then, but then they were also just like getting super soprano y with one another. Like, you know, you that know, sounds like, amazing. Yeah. Like, I think <laughs> at one point, Polly did call the other one like, a stunad for trying to tell him how to do the laugh. And uh, it was great. Uh, and I, I guess we should close this out by mentioning that I, earlier today, I sent you a clip of uh, Animal, Beaker, and the Swedish chef singing uh, Danny Boy, which is up there for me as one of my favorite Muppet sketches. It's just, yeah. it's hysterical. Just to, especially Animal's like, Oh, daddy, bye, bye, bye. And then Beaker obviously going, me, 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 me. And it's just so flat and out of, oh, I, I lose it mm-hmm. every single time I, I watch that. I love it so much. Well, that's a great bit. And then I, I responded with the question, did SNL steal this in the 80s? And they had the video Christmas greeting with John Lovitz playing Tonto and Kevin Nealon playing Tarzan and phil hartman playing frankenstein uh, and they were all singing um what what song oh deck the halls and it's it's uh similar the same yeah same same yeah yeah except for uh phil hartman's frankenstein usually just kind of (laughs) and then says fire bad fire bad (laughs) yeah that was that was a recurring bit right yeah they did that a few times just there's like Mm -hmm. a few different ones Mm -hmm. oh man i miss phil hartman yeah. Yeah. Wow, we're, we're really... This is the episode of digressions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, as you mentioned up top, this is our second annual Oscar episode, and we've got Oscar fever. Yes. We've the got Oscars the ghost of Joan Rivers weekend. here to yell at us for what we're wearing. Yeah. We're wearing what we usually wear, uh, which is T-shirts. And assless chaps. I can't see that. <laughs> I just, you know... We like with, the, with, we like when we're after the two hours of recording, peeling your butt off of your your office chair. Right? It's you know it's just life's too hectic. You know I don't yeah. have time to pull my pants down to 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 make a push. So you know I gotta. Did, did you say me? Did you did you say make a? <laughs> did you say? <laughs> 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 did, did you say make a push 
Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> Is that from something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I like I it. Don't. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. On that note, um, have you seen any of the Best Picture nominees this year? Um, I know. You, I think you've seen a few, so I'll, I'll list them off. Um, there's The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it because I haven't seen. This is like one of the only ones I haven't seen. But uh, Minari, or is it Minari? Um, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of Chicago Seven. Okay, so I've seen Sound of Metal, Mank, and Nomadland. Okay. Uh, I've seen all but the previously mentioned Minari, or Minari, sorry if I'm screwing that up, uh, and The Father. Okay. Uh, it's, 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 it's a weird year in the sense that, you know, as everyone knows, a lot of movies' release dates have been shuffled quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But it felt like for these big... Oscar movies that they kind of stuck with their normal release schedules, which was really strange, especially for a movie like um, Nomadland and Minari, where I would imagine on a normal year, the bulk of their business is done in LA and New York. And both of th- both of them had all their theaters closed yeah. during this run. So it didn't really make much sense. And then they put them up to rent uh, on the usual streaming services, uh, and Minari and the Father are still twenty bucks, so to watch both of them would would be forty dollars. And Meg, I don't think has any interest in either of them, so uh, that's a lot of money. So I've just been showing an unusual amount of restraint for myself, mm-hmm. and 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 figured I'd wait. I mean, I waited for Promising Young Woman because um, that was twenty bucks for a while, and I ended up renting that for like five bucks or whatever. Uh, and some of these, like Nomadland, popped up on Hulu. Yeah, yeah, that's how I saw that one. Um, Mank obviously was released on Netflix. Um, Sound of Metal was on Prime, and I feel like that's that one. I was surprised by how well received that was. Come award season, that one didn't necessarily have that. Uh, something like Mank and even Nomadland um, sort of had, you know, prestige picture kind of that aura around them sound of metal i think yeah i mean i don't i don't know if 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 the consensus is that was sort of a a surprise to a lot of people i certainly was surprised by it my initial interest was really um in the fact that it was shot in and around my hometown which is sort of how it came on my radar uh i mean i it kind of fits into that narrative of like someone with a disability um, which the Oscars tend to like those kind of movies. It's not as flashy as those movies, like a My Left Foot or something like that. Um, but they are known for 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 nominating that type of thing. Did you notice any? Um, I don't know if if you have an ad free Hulu subscription or not, but I do. Not oh, you do. So you didn't see? Uh, we 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 don't. We have the ads, and there was some movie. That they were the they were really pushing trailers for shortly after Sound of Metal came out, and it looked like you know the bizarro world schlocky awful version of that premise. It was uh like some some like 
you know, manic pixie dream 20 something going on a road trip to record all his favorite sounds before he loses his hearing and very like, very like twee and precious looking. And I mean, I never, I never heard anything about it besides seeing the trailers kind of shoved down my throat. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't sound familiar. Looks bad. Uh, did you like all those movies that you watch and do you plan on watching any of the other ones once they become a little more accessible? Yeah. Meaning, meaning um, cheap. <laughs> certainly. Uh, uh, Meanery looks, you know, I've heard great things about promising young woman. I don't know much about, but it, it's something that pops up often enough, uh, and seems to have a pretty, seems, is it fairly polarizing? Promising young woman? Yeah. Yeah. I, or am I, I think, think so. Of, okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so I like I'm aware of that like that discourse around it. Sure. Um, the other ones I don't know. Uh, I really liked I, I loved Sound of Metal. I really liked Nomad Land. Um, you know, Mank was fine. I don't I did not find myself thinking about it much after the fact. It's strange. Like this whole list. Um, again, I haven't seen The Father or Minery, um, and I hear The Father is surprisingly really good. Uh, Why do you say so, surprisingly? Because it's just not something. It just felt feels like kind of unassuming, and a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, skipped it, it seemed. Um, especially because it did have that weird rollout, um, that traditional Oscar rollout, and it really only became available to rent within the past couple of weeks. So I think it kind of squeezed in there. So I think that's maybe what's surprising about it. Um, but yeah, I hear great things about that one. So I'm excited to see both of those. But the rest of them, I feel like there's nothing in here that is as exciting as last year with the irishman and parasite and uh once upon a time in hollywood which feel like i don't know once in a decade kind of exciting things and this these all kind of feel a little middle of the road to me anyway um i mean and i and like again like i like sound of metal that's probably my favorite out of the ones that i've seen and i think nomad land is is decent uh manka was really disappointed in I don't think it's bad. I think sometimes like within the context of this list, when all of a sudden it's representing the best of the year, they almost take on this other context of just like, oh, well, now I'm rooting against you. And we've talked about mm-hmm. this before. Sure. Um, I feel that way about Nomadland. I feel going into it, you know, I, I, I watched and enjoyed Chloe Zhao's last movie. And so I know her process and when I watched Nomadland, I, was, I felt that I knew everything about it before I watched it. And there was nothing that grabbed me necessarily. And like, it's lovely performances and it looks nice. And that's what everyone says. And I do feel like maybe it would have been better as a documentary because she's obviously good at getting these performances from non-actors. And most of mm-hmm. the interesting stuff in the movie to me were those non-actors. So... Uh, and it's based loosely off of a book, which gets more into detail about these people's lives. So I don't know. I felt like maybe it would have worked better in that kind of in that context. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did you like it or? Yeah, I did. I found it. Um, you know, I thought it was moving. Um, you know, I know like there's a big argument around the fact that it doesn't explicitly call out Amazon for um, its its labor. Uh, practices, but I, you know, I don't know that it necessarily needed to. I, I certainly did not. I was never like, oh man, good for Francis McDormand. She's going back to work at Amazon. <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. it was what it was, and you know, I don't, I don't think 
I don't think he needed to hit you over the head with it. Um, no, it's an observational movie. It's it's strange that people feel that that is like uh, a mark against it. That's not necessarily my issue with it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I th- I think I mean if anything, I you know, it's um you know the two leads are great in it, and I, I just but they're also kind of distracting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I you think. Know? Like, she's really good at reacting to people. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not much beyond that, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Sh- Trial of Chicago 7 uh, is by Aaron Sorkin. And, you know, it's on Netflix. And when you're watching it, it you know, it moves like a Sorkin script. You know, he he's good at that. He's good at that, that kind of crackerjack back and forth dialogue, that mm-hmm. rhythm. But it's very shallow, and uh, its politics are kind of uh, a little dumb, a little broad, like like a lot of late period Sorkin stuff. I don't think sure. it belongs in here at all. And like I said, Mank was pretty disappointing for me because I love Fincher so much. I don't like the way it looks, uh, and I felt it was a this 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 boxing match between a script that was very Oscar bait biopic versus Fincher's cynical approach to storytelling. Uh, And those two never really worked together for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought Gary Oldman was pretty awful um, as the titular mank. What's her name is great in it. Um, Oh, Amanda Seyfried. Amanda Seyfried's really awesome. uh, But I had two reactions initially knowing she was going to be in it my reaction was, huh, haven't heard from her in a while. Cause you know, she was really sort of being primed to be like, sort of like the, you know, an it girl, I feel like. And she, she had a bit of a moment, but then she kind of went away and, and then I watched it and my reaction was, Oh, why haven't we been hearing more from her? She's been doing a bunch of indie stuff. Uh, a lot of horror stuff. She was in season three of twin peaks. Uh, okay. She's pretty great in that. It's not a big, big role, but, um, she is good in it. Yeah, I don't know. I, it was it was disappointing primarily because I like Fincher so much, um, and in that last scene, like I don't have a problem with it playing fast and loose, loose with the truth, um, but that last scene just felt so unimaginative to me, uh, where you know Mank confronts Orson Welles and Orson Welles has like a hissy fit. It mm-hmm. just I don't know. It just felt uninspired, especially for the movie to go out on. And I, I'm like, what what are you trying to say with this? What are you trying to do? Adding to my list of grievances aimed at the Snyder Cut, I got my dates mixed up, so I, I thought I had a couple more days to catch Judas and the Black Messiah before it came off of HBO oh. Max, but I did not. <laughs> yeah. I, it was just... Yeah. It's good. Got it flipped. Um, yeah, I liked it. I, I That's another one that I think... Yeah, I, I, I don't know a ton about Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill other than superficial stuff. Um mm-hmm. So I have read some complaints along those lines of it, the depiction of them and, and mostly about how Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are, are way too old to be playing these parts. They are good in the roles. I, I thought they were terrific and it's an interesting movie. I wish the focus of the movie was more on Fred Hampton than on um, Bill O'Neill. Um, it just felt like it would have been a more interesting narrative, but I don't want to give too much away. I, I do think you sure. should watch it. It's pretty good. 
like I said, I watch Promising Young Woman and like no no one needs to hear my opinion about that movie. Uh, I I think there are plenty of smart people that have taken it to task and have gotten at why it's probably a shallow depiction of of this type of story, this rape revenge story. Um, again, like you don't need to hear from me about that. You can go search those out on your own, I think. Um, yeah. I, I just, I thought maybe it'd probably be better if it had a little more teeth to it, a little more grit. Um, but again, like if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil too much about it, especially because the ending is unexpected. All right. Are you going to watch the Oscars? No. <laughs> I um, uh, Yeah, I really don't. I, I find myself caring less and less. I think we talked about this a bit last year. Once they uh, opened up the the nominees to more than five, it became especially sort of, I don't know that I necessarily have the energy or the interest in, in tracking them all down. Things are different this year. A lot of them were right at my fingertips. So um, things are different this year since I had so many of them right at my fingertips. Um, you know, I had the time, so of course I would watch them. Um but you know, especially now going forward, I don't know if next Oscar year, next Oscar season, if if theaters are open and things are back to normal, like you know, am I going to have the time to go to seven, eight, nine different movies? Who knows? Um, the whole mystique around the Oscars just uh, that that tarnish is, or that that sparkle has faded for me. You know? Yeah. Oh, of course. And not even not even for like the obvious stuff. You know the you know, the politics of the Oscars and the sort of, um, you know, the exclusionary nominations and, and stuff like that. Um, there's I just, some big, I, there's I, some it, big ones this year. Yeah. Yeah. Especially it, with um, the five bloods. Yeah. You know, I, I'd rather take your word for it or, <laughs> well, thank you. Film Twitter's word for it and, and <laughs> kind of track things down independently. It's just, yeah. I don't, are you going to, are you going to watch them? Yeah, I'll watch it. Just for shits and giggles, it's not precious to me. Um, I don't, I don't get worked up. Like you know, it's fun to to make fun of it while you're watching it, sure. or at least make fun of the decisions. But there's like most of my favorite movies weren't nominated for anything, so that's you know, it's not a big deal. It's not the end of the world, and um, yeah. So, but it's fun to kind of watch and you know make a make a night of it, especially because I'm not really a sports person. So this is like almost that 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 site type of event for me sure you you are you putting money on it is there like a DraftKings app for uh the oscars no i did a few years back um we got together with a bunch of friends and family and had like an an oscar sheet and i got most of it and it's only because not because i i'm good at picking it's just i'm good at reading <laughs> you know and you you read other people's prognostications about it, and I'm I'm just more uh, versed in that stuff than everyone that was there. So, oh, so you were a, you were a ringer? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I, what's a ringer in that context? You know, you know what a ringer is, right? Like yeah, it's someone like when you like, have a shirt and it's got like the the collar is a. Okay, a, sorry. All right, I'm sorry. I'm what sorry. did I tell you? I make the jokes. Okay. No, you know, like a ringer, like like a. Uh, uh, in the color of money, Tom Cruise uh, yeah. is a ringer. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. shucks. I don't know how to play pool. Yeah. You okay, lose a yeah, couple yeah, of yeah. games. Double or nothing. Last time. I think I'm going to make it this time. Bam. You clean the floor with the guy. Side note. Isn't The Color of Money fucking awesome? It's great. It's a great movie. I've only seen it once. Man, it's so it's so good. It's underrated because it's like his sellout movie, Scorsese's sellout movie. But it's great. It's just, you know, it's so much fun to watch and Newman's amazing. Um, but but why why watch 2021 Oscars when we can watch movies from older Oscars? That's right. Today, we're talking about the 1949 Oscars. The 49 or the 48? It's 49. All the movies are from 48. From 48. Okay. Yep. Uh, Last year, uh, if you're um, a longtime listener of the podcast, we did an Oscar episode, our first annual Oscar episode, and we covered 1973 uh, with The Godfather, The Immigrants, Sounder, Deliverance, and cabaret uh and we mm-hmm. had fun talking about it we discovered some new favorites especially with cabaret um, yeah for sure yeah uh this year we were talking about 1949 and if you're listening and this is your first oscar episode we just chose this at random we ask mm-hmm. our computers give us a number <laughs> between <laughs> one and 80 or whatever going into this have you heard of any of the movies that were nominated for best picture uh, two of them. Okay. Uh, I, I suppose I should mention what the movies are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are Hamlet, Johnny Belinda, The Red Shoes, The Snake Pit, and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. So I had heard of Hamlet and Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Right on. Oh, so you'd never even heard of The Red Shoes? No. Okay. We'll get into it more when we get to the movie, but were you at least familiar with that image? At least... Of her face, no. that close-up. Nope. You've never even seen that. Wow. No. Okay, okay. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, so, you know. Wait, can you do the face again? And she's got like the sweat on her, her brow. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah the, no. You got to describe it when you do it because this is an audio medium. I don't care. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so like my hair is backlit and a super fiery red hair. And I've yep. got like these like lines that are painted on my eyes are like black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, on both sides, not just on the outside. Um, and like they, they kind of go down with like a little line of red in there too. It almost looks like mm-hmm. she's bleeding from her eyes. And it's an extreme close up and it's super, the imagery is super sharp. Like it's yeah. vibrant. And there's sweat, sweat all over my, her face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That shot. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, so we didn't want to bite off more than we can chew because uh, we'd like to talk about these things as, with as much detail as we possibly can. So we really focused on three of these five movies, which are Hamlet, Red Shoes, and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, I did uh, watch Johnny Belinda and The Snake Pit because I couldn't fall asleep last night. <laughs> I, I finished Johnny Belinda at 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, but um, they're both pretty interesting. Um, they sounded interesting. Yeah, they really are. I would. Um, I think they're worth watching. Johnny Belinda stars uh, Jane Wyman. Uh, she worked with Douglas Sirk, probably most famous for, famously for All That Heaven Allows, uh, which is a beautiful 
another beautiful Technicolor movie. Um, and she plays a deaf and mute woman, a young deaf and mute woman. Um, <clears throat> in the town that she lives in, they refer to her as, they call her dummy. And this doctor that starts working in the town realizes that she's pretty pretty clever and she starts he starts teaching her sign language. Uh, and her her father who raised her is you know starting to give her more attention uh, and unfortunately this local town drunk slash asshole rapes her and she gets pregnant and she has the baby uh, and there's all these conversations about whether or not she should be allowed to have the baby who the father is because no one really knows um this and the snake pit are kind of feel like this post world war ii socially conscious movies like they're bringing these new these new ideas to to the theater or to cinema this one obviously about a a deaf and mute woman and and how she is um a real person uh probably trying going against people's preconceived notions because obviously they they call her deaf and dumb in the movie Mm -hmm. which is a prevalent term uh, back then I feel like she gets a little sidelined too much uh, in the narrative. Like it should be mostly her picture, but unfortunately a lot of things happen to her. And, and that is sort of the point of it, obviously, because they're the town is removing her agency. Um, but it's interesting. She gives a great performance. She was the one that won for best actress this year, Jane Wyman. Um, it looks great. It's real striking um, Academy ratio and black and white. Um, real kind of dreamlike in its its imagery. But yeah, that that one was probably my least favorite of all of them. And the Snake Pit is um who's in that one? Snake from The Simpsons, Snake Pliskin, Snake from Metal Gear Solid. Uh <laughs> Snake uh the, the Snake Pit stars uh, Olivia de Havilland, which who's probably most famously known for playing Maid Marion in um the Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Uh she's also in The Harris, which is a great movie. It's you know, she. This is a movie about her having uh, what they call in the movie a nervous breakdown, and she goes into a, a mental institution. And you know, th- there's parts of this that are really interesting because it has a great visual, uh, almost German expressionist kind of look at the institution. And I think its heart is in the right place because it it's really about how people that have mental disabilities get lost in big institutions versus getting the help they need from individuals. Um, but a lot of the aspects of her, her mental ailments are, are kind of pat and, and easily resolved. And, and it just feels a little too uh, rote for, for any kind of complex uh, conversations about mental illness. Uh, is that fair for a movie for 1948? You know, probably not. Especially when it, like I said, I do think it has uh, it, it's hard in the right place. Yeah, that was my question. Is do you think within the context of the year it was made, if if you could say the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's going to get stuff wrong, and it does. But the goal of the movie is about her and her this one individual doctor who sees her as a person and wants to help her and figure things out. Um, so in that context, it is about treating it with the kind of kindness and thoughtfulness that you'd hope to see um, 
in real life. So, but the institution itself is, you know, filled with like cliched depictions of mental illness that probably haven't aged well for something like um, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, it's like an extreme version of that. But there are some great imagery uh, throughout the movie. It is black and white. Um, there is like a moment where we get to see the titular snake pit, I guess, where she describes how there is this old kind of idea with mental illness where if you throw a sane person into a snake pit, they will become insane. So if you throw an insane person into a snake pit... <laughs> They will become sane. Um, and the movie doesn't support that. It, it's not. She's just saying this as like how she feels. And it cuts to like a scene of her in the center of a circular room with all the other inmates circling around her and, and the camera pans up and it's like just these brick walls with no windows and no escape like an actual pit. It's a really striking image. Um, I was really surprised by that. Uh, there's a, a decent amount of that without kind of going too much into like that surreal kind of dreamy kind of stuff it's interesting again they're both like more interesting than successful yeah i mean those those do sound like i said those sounded interesting it just they weren't um the three we are going to talk about were all on streaming platforms i have (laughs) yeah uh although i did see um uh turner classic movies was doing some long marathon where they were they just had a full, like a stacked, I think it's going on currently, schedule, like 24 hours for multiple days of all, I think all Best Picture nominees, oh, or, cool. or a significant portion of them for covering a wide span of time. And um, looking through the uh, schedule, they were airing the snake pit, but it did not line up in time for us to talk about it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have recognized the name. So... They're not movies that are talked about a lot, Snake Pit or Johnny Belinda. Which I think is another reason why we felt like we could yeah, maybe sidestep them. Um, so let's move on to the three that we did watch, uh, starting with um, with Hamlet. And so I, I just want to back up a bit to when you were talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, y- you, you didn't feel like you knew enough of the true story behind the movie to to make a, a judgment on how accurately or fairly the movie um, told that story, you know. And I think when it comes to any adaptation, whether it be uh, f- adapting a true story to a film, adapting a novel to a film, there is a degree of certainly acknowledging the source material, but. For the most part, I, I feel that you know uh, the adaptation should be judged on its own. Mm-hmm. I don't think that applies to Shakespeare, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like I feel like when it comes to Shakespeare, a big part of enjoying uh, or even being able to get on board with an uh, an adaptation of Shakespeare or a production of Shakespeare, you know, I, I do think there is. Um, an understanding of the text uh, can only benefit the experience. Do you mm-hmm. do you think I'm off base here? No, I see what you're saying. I I'm I, I have like a 
perfect counterexample to that, though, because I just watched Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa, and there's no actual dialogue from Shakespeare in that. And it is an adaptation of Macbeth. It has the whole arc. It has every piece it needs. And I think it's incredible and and, and, and a remarkable okay. movie. I think... Uh- Excluding something like like that, or because um, that is a big know, jump. Any, that is a big jump. Yeah, right. Or any other instance where um, you know someone is taking Shakespeare and really like transmuting it into something else. Whether it's uh, all right, let's put Macbeth in uh, feudal Japan, or I mean, The Lion King is Hamlet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I know that. So in this uh, this version, which was uh, directed by and starred. Lawrence Olivier, you know, I, I read was a little controversial because it was only two and a half hours long, yeah. which means <laughs> they left a lot of dialogue and a bunch of characters on the, like two hours know, yeah, out of the movie. And, and I'll have to say up front too, like I, it's been a long time since I've read Hamlet. I was really young uh, and I've seen other adaptations of it. It's been a long time since I've seen those. Um, and the only thing to me that stood out because I, I, you know, my memory isn't isn't the best when it comes to that type of stuff, was that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were not in this version of, of the play. I don't know watching it if, like, it's hard to say because I was like, oh, I need two more hours of this. Um, you know, give me the Olivier cut. Um, but he, he, this was his choice. He made these big decisions. I don't know if the mm-hmm. studio would have allowed him to make something that long. Um, did you, so did you feel that it was missing something? I didn't feel that it was missing something. I, I just feel that it, you know, I, I think, yeah. So I don't think the point I was making was that if you don't know Shakespeare, you're not going to get the film. Or if you do know Shakespeare, um, you know, you're, you, you're, that's gonna, I just think it's something set. I think it's something different. I think it's sort of its own, category of of literature and mm-hmm. and and stage production and film and i'm not saying that as a shakespeare person uh i likewise have not haven't had experience with hamlet since high school english class but i've never you know and shakespeare is a part of high school english and i i don't know that i've never i've never really had much interest in exploring it outside of that context have you have you read or, or or gone to see any Shakespeare independently of of uh of school uh, school assignment or or even just like oh well I heard this is a good movie yeah I've seen uh a midsummer's night's dream is that the right title right a midsummer Mid- a midsummer night's dream midsummer night's dream uh I saw a, a production of that in Providence um mm-hmm. trying to think I don't I don't know I think I've seen other ones uh, in in Providence, but it's been a long time. It's been a it has been a while, and and um, Megan Meg is not a Shakespeare person. Like the language sets her on edge, um, so that's kind of a barrier for going to see it in person, or at least going to see a play of it. It asks a bit of effort from its audience, yeah. and that's not a bad thing. Um, I think that language is certainly intimidating and can put people off. I think what was striking about this film was how conversational the 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 players really presented the the dialogue. Cuz I mean when you when you, your only context is 
high school English, you're you're not exactly getting uh, the best the best thesps uh, for sure. the material. I was really surprised with how much of the language of this I remembered, like how so many lines have maybe made their way into the public consciousness and have found their way into our everyday language or found their way into other works of art. Uh, it, so, yeah. so much of it felt familiar, even though it's been a while since I've seen any version of Hamlet. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I flagged a couple like murder, most foul brevity is a soul of wit. I mean, those are things you just hear um, rotten in Denmark. I was like, oh, yeah. Tarantino line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how? what was your experience watching it? Did you enjoy this or was it tough for because I know going into it for me, this is the one I was just like, oh, looking at the list, I was like, is this going to be like this stuffy British adaptation that will probably be will be okay but something that's just not as ex- exciting is not the right word but i don't know i and i think you had mentioned like oh you worried it, it would be homework yeah uh, and like i don't necessarily like using that term but i guess that that's the most appropriate one for this I was worried about that and I didn't feel that at all when I watched it. I thought it moved pretty quickly and I was really surprised with uh, it, the visual language of this movie. I didn't expect it to have the this kind of deft hand at direction that it did. Yeah, uh, you know, I threw on subtitles because a lot of the dialogue is fast. Um, Me too. Which on on top of the the words themselves, you know, it, it it's a couple of... Th- things stacked against you it, it can be tough to keep up um but even just glancing down quickly to sort of pull out keywords so you can get the gist of what's happening and then allowing yourself to to not get so focused on reading that you're actually hearing the delivery because i think the delivery is important we kind of talked about this i think after you watched it but before i got to it that even if you you miss like the lyricism and the rhythm of it and and the way it's being said, um, the body language, the actual tone of voice kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting. And, I, you know, I, I found that to be, like I said, I, I was surprised by some of the conversational aspect of it. Yeah, a lot of the soliloquies are, are internal monologues, which I right, thought with, was a weird choice. Yeah, but I kind of liked it, you know, with the sort of, you know, the, the occasional um external expression of certain lines as if he's sort of you know he's he's thinking and reacting to his own thoughts um i thought the intro sequence was like was really captivating and and really kind of draws you in they do a lot of cool stuff up on the the sort of ramparts of the castle it felt very um caligari in its own Mm -hmm, way yeah like very minimalist very expressionist and then they do this really cool effect when um when the ghost of the dead king oh he's so awesome coming yeah but before you see him you know whoever is sort of seeing him for the first time there you know there's like this rhythm to as their heart starts to to speed up and the camera kind of like dollies in and and rack focuses in time with the heartbeat so it's this really kind of disorienting it's like it's breathing yeah yeah it's a really cool effect and i think you had mentioned like a stuffy British adaptation. I think in general, when I, I don't like this about myself, but when I think of movies from a certain time period, I do have certain expectations. And for the most part, I think, especially with 
Hamlet and the Red Shoes, visually, um, these sort of defied my expectations and, and showed just some ignorance of, you know, the, the broad strokes that you have when you think about old movies. I sure. thought this was really, like you said, really, really a, a dynamic visual. The ghost in, um, itself is just, it's so scary because its eyes are, its face is completely shrouded in shadow and it's got these two like white beady eyes. And I guess um, that's Lawrence Olivier doing the voice and he kind of, what they did is he'd like speak really quietly, but they cranked the gain on uh, the microphone to give it this weird hush yet loud kind of quality to it. And then they slowed it down and it's really unnerving. Like, cause I was watching this late at night and I was just like, Oh shit, this is fucking creepy. Um, I thought it was really effective, but beyond that, I was kind of more taken with the imagery in the direction of this than I was with the language. That could be partly because like you had mentioned, like it's so quick and, and, um, and, and sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around a lot of it, but I was really impressed with like how often he used like this massive castle set, uh, where he'd have like one character or one figure just dwarfed by the set and just, engulfed in deep deep shadows and the light is usually pretty harsh it's like intense lighting usually from like one or two directions with deep deep shadows like you said it's like german expressionism a lot of film noir in it and i didn't expect a lot of that and i thought it was really really beautiful yeah a lot of silhouettes and sort of like a like a sort of defining like accent light for the texture around like you know the the person's profile there's a scene in in about the middle of the movie where and we don't need to get into the details about hamlet it's hundreds of years old but you know when the when the actors come to the castle and and he sort of prompts them with playing out the murder of his father and and the way the the camera kind of swoops almost like a like a pendulum sort of looking at the players and arcing back around the king and the queen and sort of you get the king and queen's reactions in that kind of shadowy profile, but you're also seeing the periphery and all the people watching sort of slowly realizing like, Oh shit. Like what, what are they do? What are, what are these actors doing right now? What, what are we all just being told? And it's really, it's really cool and kind of, you know, menacing in the way that Hamlet wants it to be. And it, it feels it you know it feels like you're learning a dirty secret even though you know it the whole time it's it's really really well done and there's like really no music unless it's within the context of the story uh which i thought was was pretty fascinating it's a lot of kind of sparse empty spaces and quiet real quiet inner monologues it was it was it almost felt counterintuitive to what you would think something like this was and that really impressed me um like ophelia um, like with her body in the river is just a really striking image. Uh, there was a lot of that. And even like the, this, the, the play within the play, uh, which kind of outlines everything that's happening in, in the world of the, the play in, in Hamlet. Um, it's all really uh, well realized. What, what did you think of his performance? Cause he won, he won for, for lead actor. I think this is a good example of what I was trying to, articulate earlier like i don't know like it was good but i feel like i feel like there's still something i should be comparing it to yeah i get that i feel like 
I feel like I feel like Shakespeare cannot exist outside of a comparison back to you know some er text whether that's the 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 original play or like some defining production of it but like what does that even mean at this point it's you know been centuries i'm reading so i think i mentioned to you i'm reading that biography on mike nichols um and you know he did a lot of stage stuff and obviously he didn't do any shakespeare and he's did a lot of comedy but uh I was really taken with this notion that a lot of the actors that he worked with would say Mike would be able to observe them and hear the lines and be like, no, 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 no. Put the emphasis on this word on the and and you'll get your laugh. And he said that they said that he was always, always right. Uh, and I think that's what's fascinating about Shakespeare, obviously, because I think that's where the interpretation and why actors love it so much is it is about like which thing that they're emphasizing, how to say each word, where to say each words, how to create the rhythm to the language. And it is uh, complex and sometimes it's hard to, to, to really grab onto. That's why I said like for me visually, I was just really impressed with it. I didn't expect that from this. Yeah, I think the visuals overall and a few key sequences were really kind of strung me along i mean overall i was i did find myself quite bored with it by the sort of i don't know uh late middle part but then you know that but that you know the 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 finale is really um exciting and uh either i lied my way through you know uh exams and never actually finish reading it or i just <laughs> forgot i forgot you know i the end i did not know how it resolved in the end um the sword fight at the end is thrilling like yeah they're great. really going at it uh it's really exciting choreography and and blocking and framing and uh it's 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 quite a thing uh shall we move on let's so the next one we're going to talk about is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Now, you said you had heard of this one before. Uh, yes, what, I just... What, I just. What's the context? Do you, did you know anything about it or were you excited to watch this one? Uh, I was excited. Um, knew it as a classic. Um, you know, obviously Humphrey Bogart sort of... Um, uh, one, you know, one, one of the, the, the faces on Golden Age Hollywood's Mount Rushmore, you know... Um, Familiar with uh, John Huston, really only most recently through, from the context of, of it coming up frequently um, uh, in the wake of the Five Bloods getting released. You know, sim- that's sort of similar um, MacGuffin of of uh, you know looking for gold in uh, dangerous territory. I also recommended it on our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode. Yes, you did. So yeah, I mean that's I mean that's really it. I didn't know much of the details. So sure, yeah, and the the premise is is relatively simple. Um, Humphrey Bogart is kind of down on his luck in Mexico, destitute, penniless. He's begging for money. Uh, he kind of hooks up with uh, Tim Holt and um, Walter Houston, who is John Houston's father, uh, and they go searching for gold. Um, so. On its on the surface, it's it seems like it's probably just like a adventure movie. Uh, it, it has uh, shootouts, has double crossings, and all that. Um, I'm just I'm I think, especially watching this, this is my second viewing, and I'm just so taken with the story and the script and how stealthily it really is about these complex 
uh, morally gray characters. Um, and I think it does a lot of things really brilliantly. Um, first of all, in the beginning, Walter Houston, whose character is just so, so terrific. He's like this kind of irascible, you know, wily older man um, who he's like, he's like the, he's the template for that old timey prospector. Yeah. Oh, for sure. He's so good in this. So charming and, and funny. Um, but in the beginning, he gives this whole spiel about how this gold, searching for gold can, could, could lead to greed. Um, and it almost feels like it's you know on the nose for what the message is for the movie. But the movie throughout constantly subverts that. It's not just mm-hmm. about greed. And we learn pretty quickly that Bogart's character is just a fucking asshole. He's just right from the get-go. He's a coward. He doesn't want to put in the work. He, he doesn't want to help anybody. Um, and the act of getting the gold, aside from like the physical labor that they put in to get it, really isn't that difficult. And the only reason he loses it is because of his own avarice and his own greed and jealousy. Um, it's all of those things. And I, I just think it makes so many smart decisions. One of which is when the bandits do show up, there are these bandits that show up that kind of hound them. They have no interest in the gold. And I thought that was such a, that's such a wonderful idea, especially in this whole thing um, that we're taught that the gold is going to be the end of them and the bandits show up and they don't care about that. They just want guns. You know, my, my familiarity with Bogart, uh, you know, I've seen Casablanca, I've seen the Maltese Falcon, uh, the big sleep. I feel like there was another one. Maybe not, maybe not. Uh, and you know, I mean, even in those, he, he's, you know, he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's jaded, but he's, he's world weary, but he's still the good guy. And I think, you know, what was surprising for me, not knowing the context of his role in this movie and really not knowing much more beyond the sort of like, you know, the immortalized frozen and Amber image of Humphrey Bogart was how much of a scumbag he was. So that was really surprising and really exciting to see, you know, even if he was going to do the sort of reluctant hero thing again, like for him to just be like full on heel turn was, was really, really fun to watch. He's essentially the antagonist of the movie, even though it's from, he's the character we spend the most time with. We start the movie with him. And he does talk that big game at the beginning where you think, you know, he's, he always says that he's going to do the right thing, but Never does. It's it's not until maybe half an hour, 40 minutes in where he's presented with an opportunity to and continuously just like is the, 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 the biggest asshole about it. There's this great anecdote where I guess whether they were they were filming it or, or after they had filmed it where Bogart was leaving a nightclub and he ran into a critic that he knew and he said, wait till you see me in my next picture. I play the worst shit you ever saw. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, it must be fun to really like sink your teeth in a, such a sleazy character like that. He's so good in this. And he's also like, it's a very um, visual performance too. Like he's, there's no ego. It doesn't seem like there's any ego there because by the end, he's just disgusting. Like his just faces like just got the worst beard and like his hair is just all gnarly and matted and sweaty. Mm-hmm. And like, he's just covered in dirt and um, 
He looks awful. <laughs> it's such a great performance. It's I'm really shocked that he wasn't nominated at all. There's a little bit of like kind of going like because in the beginning, like you do feel some like in the beginning, it's not that he's he's evil off like right out the the gate. He's just pathetic. He's just absolutely pathetic. So you do feel a little sympathy for him at first. Uh, but that kind of goes away. And it goes from zero to 50 really quickly. Um, but I, it works for me. I think I think he's he's um, he's just so fun to, to watch him be so shitty. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, early on he, um, you know, when they, they meet Walter Houston and he's like, he's like, no, nah, man, I would, I'd, I'd only take what I needed. I'd never get greedy about it. Or he, he gets busted from, he gets busted trying to, to get a, a handout from the same person twice. Yeah, I think it's and, three you know, times. Oh, is it at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes. But yeah, but, he but begs you know for that one guy calls times, him out yeah. on it, and, and but yeah, but there's someone who catches him. He he hits up the same person, and you know they call him out on. It. He's like, oh, I'm I'm yeah, sorry, didn't mean it again because someone caught him. But you don't know that about him yet. So yeah, oh, man, it's so good. It's really a lot of fun. Um, and then that that guy he's begging the money off of that is John Houston. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's uncredited. Um, and Walter Houston, like we said, is great. He won for Best Supporting Actor. Um, John Houston won for, for I think it, it's, I think, did the screenplay win? Uh, no, he won for Direction for uh, for this, yeah. The directing nominees were Houston for Sierra Madre, Olivier for Hamlet, uh, Gene uh, Negalusco for Johnny Belinda, Fred Zinneman for The Search, which I'm not familiar with, and Anatole Litvak for The Snake Pit. So it's a bummer that um, Red Shoes didn't get nominated, but we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. I think out of these choices, I do think that is the correct choice. I think for me, this is the kind of thoughtful, workmanlike, and I mean that in the best way, direction. Um, because I know sometimes that that workmanlike in in relation to film can kind of be used as a pejorative, but I do think that he is a very economical storyteller, and it's not flashy, but everything is in its right place. Um, I'm just uh, so impressed by the staging and blocking of the actors in a lot of this, and how they move, uh, and how he uses the frame. Especially all these movies are in the Academy ratio, and um, it's it's I love that aspect ratio. And I, I think it's unfortunate that we don't see it more often um, because there's such a stigma attached to it, like black and white modern movies. Anytime you see it, people are just like, well, that's automatically pretentious, which is a load of horseshit. But um, that's another story for another day. Um, but yeah, he just uses this, these big tall frames for these mountains. They're going up in these big sandy fields. And uh, um, this was one of the first um, movies to be filmed um, out of the country, um, oh, which, is, okay. which is surprising. A lot of it's on sets and they match so nicely, but they did film in Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the actors are actually Mexican actors, which is um, kind of unusual for this this time frame. Um, I think they 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 gotten a lot of heat for going over budget and for for being in Mexico. <laughs> uh, filming longer than they needed to and spending more money. And and another great quote from Bogart is uh, in relation to the fact that there was John Houston also, um, uh, was it Walter, right? Walter, his dad. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but Bogart said, um, one Houston is bad enough, but two are murder. 
<laughs> Bogart's the best. <laughs> yeah. I love Bogart. Do you, do you have any other um, favorite workman directors that uh, you you wish got a little more credit? You know, Houston is the best uh, in that regard. Like, he has a really long career, very varied career. I mean, I think Hawks probably got that a lot before the French were like, no, this is a serious artist, you know, Howard Hawks. Um, so he probably doesn't get labeled that as much. William Wyler, a lot of the older guys. It's hard with modern guys because they don't have the, that kind of, and you watch these movies and like, like Hamlet, treasures uh, the treasure of the sierra madre and red shoes like if someone came to me and wanted a good place to start for older movies i'd say all three of these movies yeah because if someone uh, one one misconception about older movies is that they're not as morally complex as modern stuff and you just show them treasure of the sierra madre done L- look at how complex these characters are look at how much is going on in in this 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 whole movie Look at how it ends, where Bogart basically rejects everybody. The, well, first off, the bandits show up, and because they're in a group, in a unit, they're able to fend themselves from the bandits. But then they all end up separating, and Walter Houston's character goes to help this small town because this little boy um, is sick, and they don't know how to help him. So he goes to help them, and they kind of insist that he stays, uh, and, and they celebrate him. And so... So the other two guys are left on their own and, and, and they would have been fine, but Bogart's just like, no, I don't trust you. You're going to steal the money. Um, and um, the other character, the other actor who's played by Tim Holt is a, is a reasonably good guy. Um, but Bogart kind of leaves to fend for himself, shoots Holt, um, and then he gets attacked by the bandits. And the bandits don't care that there are all these bags filled with gold. And that they could be wealthy. They don't care. And no. When they, they they get weighed down when they end up in possession of it and they just dump it. And uh, they murder uh, Bogart's character. They just mur- murder him in cold blood. But then what's so lovely about this is that we then spend like 10 minutes um, with all these Spanish-speaking characters um, with no subtitles. And you kind of understand what's happening. The bandits get caught by the federales. Um, there's a beautiful grace note too, where they're going to execute the bandits and you can't really see them. And one of them drops his hat and then he moves forward into the frame and he kind of, we, we don't understand, you don't understand him unless you speak Spanish. He kind of insinuates is like, Hey, I'm going to die. Can I at least put my hat on? And they're like, of course. And they give him this little grace moment to put his hat back on and then they execute them. And I was just like, what other movies would include something like that? It was a beautiful little grace note. Um, and then in the end, um, Walter Houston and Tim Holt, you know, they, they find out what happened to Bogart. They go and to see if there's any of the gold left, and they see that it's being blown away in the wind. And Walter Houston is essentially like, well, that's the way the world works. You know, That's how it happens. Shit happens, kind of. Yeah. I guess we're just going to keep moving on. And I think what's brilliant is in the beginning once we meet him, he kind of has all these ideas. He knows all about gold. He knows what to do. And you learn quickly that he's probably could be really wealthy, but he doesn't really seem to give a shit. That's not really the point of life. Um, Cause at the beginning he's also destitute and poor and down on his luck, but he has all this skill set and this knowledge. 
And at the end, he's just like, yeah, okay, gone today, here today, gone tomorrow. And it's such a beautiful ending. It feels like something out of a Coen Brothers movie, like that kind of, mm-hmm. uh, s- s- not am- ambiguous, but slightly wistful, like of like how, uh, w- what's the line from uh, uh, A Simple Man? Except the mystery, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look at the parking lot. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and then <laughs> the last shot is obviously of the close-up of a bag of, of some of the gold that's left over. And then mm-hmm. we see, you know, they ride off into the sunset, as it were. Uh, it's great. It's, I think the studio thought that they were getting another Western. This is decidedly not. <laughs> I mean, it has, it has certain Western elements, but yeah, it's not... Uh... There's no cavalry. There's no, you know, the shootouts aren't what you'd expect. There's no showdown. Just all great performances and, and some some great character stuff. Should we get onto it? Let's do it. Are you so so the red? Well, shoes. let me. So earlier, we may have gotten some wires crossed because the okay. red shoes was the one that I said I thought was going to be homework. Yeah, and, and, and I knew that when I brought that up, but I just kind of put that in the context of, of Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I had told you, like, oh, dude, like, trust me. This is, like, this movie is the real deal. Like, I, yeah, I, I'm getting flustered because I just don't know how to, to describe it because it is such a unique movie. Like, how do you describe this movie, you know? You know, I, I think to sort of expose my own prejudices here, like I said earlier, I sort of had a certain expectation of movies from this period. And right off the bat, I mean, going into this, all I knew about it was that you were excited that we were watching it, and uh, Scorsese points to it as a favorite. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this movie starts, and the way the camera is moving, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I've seen these moves before. I know, like, it felt, it felt like a, like a, like a Scorsese trick and the whip pans and like, let's not even get into like story stuff just yet. Like visually, uh, the, the, the sort of visual language here was so surprising. And again, exp- uh, speaks to my sort of, uh, narrow expectations of what, uh, a movie from the late forties looks like. And then by the time we get to the big set piece in the middle, like I, I, I'm not kidding. I like, I don't know the last time I, my jaw just like fell open and it, I didn't close it until that scene was over. (laughs) That makes me so happy to hear because I mean, I don't, I think this movie, I don't remember when it be like when it entered into my, or like when it became on my wavelength, when I found out about it, I know that Powell and Pressburger, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, the directors, writers, they worked together a lot. And I had heard that, you know, as far as British directors go, that they were important. Um, and so there are all these names that were always kind of tossed around. And as far as their movies, A Matter of Life and Death, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, or Black Narcissus, uh, and, a, and a few others. So I, and I don't remember the first time I saw this, but I watched it with Meg because we were kind of going through our whole movie musical um moment where we were trying to check off all the big ones and i wouldn't say this is a musical musical it is a ballet essentially well there is a ballet right in in the middle of the whole movie um the story is pretty simple it is about a ballet company with this new dancer and a new composer um they're kind of ingenues the musical director takes them in sees something in them gives them a chance 
and then in the middle of the movie, they perform this ballet of the Red Shoes, which is an adaptation of the Hans Christian Andersen story. Um, and then um, the ballet itself mirrors what's happening in, in, in the context of the movie, The Red Shoes. Uh, and there's a bit of a, I don't want to say love triangle because it's not completely reciprocal. Um, but, right. the, but the composer and the dancer fall in love and the director of the ballet company gets instantly jealous because the dancer is supposed to commit her whole life to her art. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the gist of the movie about how we give ourselves over to to art sometimes too much. Like we could drive ourselves crazy from our passions and the things we love about. Um, and it's a heartbreaking ending. Uh, I don't know if I want to spoil it just because I think everyone should watch this movie. Um, and like we had mentioned, about an hour in, we get a good 20-minute ballet sequence. And it is probably unlike anything that you've ever seen in maybe any movie. No, it's so... You know, I, this is sort of like a crude... Um, comparison but like it kind of turns into fantasia for that 20 minutes i mean it's not it feels less like i like live action and suddenly it's they're doing things with camera and blocking and lighting and it feels almost animation like because you're seeing you're seeing essentially what the stage doesn't allow you know because like before the play happened before the ballet happens the the dancer and the composer are having a conversation and, you know, he's like, what do you think about when you're up there? And she's like, I just think about the dance. And he's like, my music will make you see, you know, what we want the audience to see. You know, and it's it's kind of like this lofty, you know, maybe he's a little full of himself. But like, but then, you know, before it even starts, he like, he even closes the book on his own music before he starts to conduct the orchestra. Like, he just knows it. And then it just becomes this, this sort of... uh hallucinatory phantasmagoric 20 minutes where she does i think what he says is uh you will become a a bird or a cloud or whatever and like and she, the, the the world of the movie does transform and you're not watching a woman and other dancers on a stage but you are seeing this composer's imagination spew out onto the screen and it's yeah uh i'm i'm still in disbelief because i like you know, i don't I can't remember the last time I've had that visceral a reaction to seeing something for the first time. And it's really, you kind of start to think, well, maybe I'm an adult and like that wonder is I'm beyond feeling that kind of wonder again. Uh, So, you know, it's nice to know I'm not dead on the inside. (laughs) Oh, that's so exciting. Um, So they apparently like in order to, uh, conceive and execute the dance sequence they had an artist do 200 oil sketches of how everything would be sequenced this movie is shot in technicolor and um, just a, a quick barris of bones explanation of tec- technicolor is they basically the camera has three rolls of film uh, and you have red blue and green I believe they're like you know the way Scorsese d- described it, he says it's 
black and white, but red, blue, and green. Um, so I think they're almost like monotone in that sense, or duotone. And then when they process it, they put the the rolls together. So another astonishing thing to think about is that when they did the restoration for this, you know, the film over time, like in addition to the usual problems that film has with aging, some of these shrink so they don't line up. So they have oh. to so they have to figure out ways to digitally move them and then to line them up properly and to restore them. Now, if you've ever seen a non-restored version of this and I've only seen like clips of it, um the, re- the restoration is astonishing. It almost looks like this mixture of like Degas, you know, those kind of French impressionistic paintings um, with these bold, rich colors. But something's a little off. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't look real. Yeah, there but is. That's there, a good there, thing. There's though. a right. No, that's exactly. There is. Um. A sort of artificiality, like reds don't look like that in real life. Blues don't look like that in real life. And the beginning of the movie takes place in in England and uh, Paris. You know, typical sort of like, especially in England, it's kind of drab. But like the reds are really popping, and and you know, I know that like the Technicolor was a big deal for this. And I and I'm and I was waiting for it to to showcase itself. And then when they go to Monaco, and it's it's you know coastlines for days and bright greens and bright blues and like and she's wearing this like blue gown and it's just the whole thing just like comes to well i mean not comes to life but it, it does it's it's this it's uh it's an almost almost as if you know uh again like an an animated an animator's sense of color as opposed to something more naturalistic it, it just it's so vivid but even beyond that, the way it's lit is so striking. And even in scenes where it's just two people having a conversation, it still feels like, oh, this is this actor posing for a painting, <laughs> you know, because there's always this nice rim lighting. Everything feels three dimensional. And there's always this purposeful light to create shape and depth, whether it's stairs and then like a splotch of light hitting them and then some backlighting to make them pop out a little more. And just how purposeful it seems that Moira Shira, their lead actress, has just the most crazy red hair. And it just pops so much with everything else. And obviously the red shoes uh, that are part of of the story, uh, they're just so vibrant. Everything's vibrant. And like I said, that one expressionistic, expressionistic shot of her face um, is just so striking. It almost looks like she's like suffering, but this is a moment in the dance. Scorsese talked about, you know, how influential this movie was. It's not just in like how it uses color, which unfortunately I don't think is as influ- influential as it should be because um, the way it uses color is just so unique. Um, you don't really see that too often, but a lot of the way it uses kind of those whip pans and jump cuts are things that really started popping up a lot in the French New Wave. That's a lot where the New Hollywood, the New Hollywood guys got a lot of that from from the French New Wave, and you know a lot of that was taken from Paul and Pressburger in this. And he said that when he got when Scorsese got the script for for Raging Bull, he wasn't really excited. He's like, I don't understand boxing. It it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but then he realized 
quickly that like it, it was about the choreography and then he connected it via red shoes by saying that everything is always in the ring it's never outside of that ring so in that sense you're in the perspective of the boxer and that's mm-hmm. what he wanted to convey and that's what he got from this where during the ballet it's not from the perspective of the audience or from us as a viewer. It's from the dancer. That doesn't mean we're in her head, but it's still, it's about, it's that tightness. It's about that unreality and staying with her. Mm-hmm. And through that context, it can be expressive and dreamlike and can go to other places and, and break from reality and be expressionistic like the fight se- sequences in Raging Bull. And that's so much of the dance sequence. Yeah, it's really it's really something. And I think, you know, we sort of gloss over the, the plot a bit here, kind of talking about these, these big, you know, technical things. But, um, I was really drawn in pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, it opens with, you know, an usher sort of just waiting to open the stage door or the, the theater doors and sort of unleash this horde of, students and rabble to come in and watch this performance and then you've got two camps you've got this group of music students who are there to see um their professor's composition and then this snobby group who are like it's just about the dance the music doesn't matter and the music starts and all the the music students faces kind of sink and like you're closing in on who ends up becoming one of the leads and his friends are like wait isn't that your thing and he's like yeah it's that's mine. The, all of it was stolen. And there's, you know, this great line that the musical director gives him when he finally kind of gets his opportunity to to uh, to show off that he is capable of this. And he's like, it's um, it's something to the effect of um, it's better to be stolen from than to need to steal or, or something like that. Being like, you're good enough that people need to steal your shit. You're not this pathetic phony who this has other to, guy needs to steal because yeah. he's not good enough yeah. yeah right right the musical director is played by anton walbrook uh, he's an austrian director he did a lot of stuff with paul and pressburger in addition to a lot of this being heightened and, and sort of dreamlike uh, the performances are big this isn't a subtle mm-hmm. movie necessarily but i think it works within the context of this in the end like he has to give this in this speech where he's breaking down because of this this great tragedy that has befallen the ballet company uh and it's a little over the top but within the context of this you you buy it you totally buy it um he's just breaking up the whole time and trying to inform the the patrons of of the ballet of what had happened yeah and that feels like you know, I, I can't point to I can't point to any examples, but it feels like something I've seen homages and satires of countless times. That that scene at the end that you're talking about, yeah. I I I don't know that I want to say much more about it because I I think <laughs> I, I I it's it's the sort of um, you know double edged sort of on the one hand, I don't know how many people sort of of our age group are are necessarily seeking this out and they should be on the other hand i also don't want to like puff it up so much that they either aren't surprised by the surprises or are let down 
when they get to these things. I'm not saying we have to stop talking about it, but like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm still, I've thought about this one a lot. Oh, that's uh, great. In the weeks since I've seen it. So, uh, yes, very exciting stuff. I, I mean, it's just so singular, you know, I think that's what it comes down to. Um, but in, in a weird way, I think like these three movies that we talked about all kind of point into di- directions of where cinema was going. Um, mm-hmm. You have that real theatrical sort of old school Shakespeare, that sort of style of acting. And then you have like this sort of action adventure kind of thing, but with meat, with substance, which is a lot of what Spielberg and Lucas were trying to do. And then you have something mm-hmm. like this, which is expressionistic uh, and dreamlike, which points in the direction of so many things that that we we love so much. Um, sure, this is such a great starting point. It's crazy that we just happened upon this, but you know, if you're listening to this and you're just and and you've never really tried watching anything, any older movies, this is this is these is a perfect place to start. I think. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely thought of two thousand one and vertigo quite a lot during that dance sequence um i think it's specifically in terms of sort of just color and the the dreaminess of it um you know not for all of 2001 but the, <laughs> the, the that stargate sequence in particular that sort of weirdness and intimacy like you're you're sharing a headspace with a a person it seems like um you know it's a, it, it almost feels like a peek into something you shouldn't be allowed to see. But at the same time, it's also like this lovely tip to the, you know, the, the sort of suspension of disbelief with something like ballet and that type of performance, or even, you know, Shakespeare is very similar where, you know, you are limited by the, 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 the finite space and the, the sets and props that are there for you to look at. And you're feeling in so much, with your own imagination and when it's done well, that's very easy to do. You know, when, when you're, you've got that great piece of music to, to dance to, or when you have language as vivid as Shakespeare's, you know, you can sort of, it's easy to fill in those blanks, but like a a bad ballet is bad. I don't know. I've only seen one ballet. (laughs) It was a local production and it was ostensibly for children. It was, um, I think it was like a Chris Van Allsburg adaptation. You know, he did like Jumanji and, um, the Polar Express, but it was, some, it was about like a witch and a broom, and and like we got tickets to it, and we just went because we were curious. Uh, and you know, in the middle of it, there's a guy who's dancing as the broom, and you're like, I think the witch is trying to fuck that broom. <laughs> this is really un- this is really uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, there's there's a six year old, there's a there's a little girl, there's a little boy, there's some children. <laughs> I can see all of that broom's junk. This is really unsettling. <laughs> I was not late. I was not able to pretend that it was just a dancing, cleaning instrument. Well, it's funny that you say that. You know, like you're you're talking about like oh, like ballet productions, and 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 even though you don't have a lot of experience with them, you can tell like this is something that felt legitimate. We didn't talk, but about Moira Shearer, but she is a a dancer first, actor second. These are not like Natalie Portman in Black Swan where she's like doing the best she can and there's a bunch of fill-ins. She's like a ballet dancer. Um, yeah. But critics love this when they came out, but ballet dancers did not like this when it came out. 
because it was too expressionistic. They were like, oh, well, mm-hmm. this is not ballet. This is something else. And even when they were working on it, the dancers themselves, they were kind of like, oh, this, is, this doesn't feel right because a lot of ballet is about precision. And the movie mm-hmm. isn't really that. It, like we said, it's more expressionistic. So they had to really embrace that part of this movie that like, no, you have to trust us that we're going to photograph you beautifully and that it's all going to make sense. Um, sure. So it's funny that like that that the perception of it when it came out. I think now amongst dancers that this is considered an important movie. I think you can't you can't not see that. Um, it obviously inspired Gene Kelly because they put like their ballet at the end of An American in Paris, and obviously there's the extended sort of dream dance sequence at the end of Singing in the Rain. Those are very different from this, and and uh, I do like an American in Paris, uh, not nearly as much as this. Um, and that's Vincent Minnelli, and he's also like a a, a pretty big um, interested in the visual component of movies, the Maison Sun and and stuff like that. Um, so that movie looks great, but looks great in different ways, you know. Um, so yeah, you could see its influence all over the place. But I'm so I'm so glad that you really took to it because um, it is special. Um, I think Treasure of the Sierra Madre is special, but just in different ways. And it's probably felt more familiar to you um, because its influences are probably, it's probably easier to to kind of see where that went after that, you know? Well, but, you know, I think we'll get into it when we talk about our recommendations. But to be honest, the first thing that came to mind when that ballet sequence started in the red shoes is probably not something you would expect. I think it's, I think my, my logic is sound and how I got there. It was, we can talk, it was we'll talk it was, about it later. It was blue big bird from follow that bird, right? Fuck. You guessed it. I did. spoiled the I surprise. Did. I'm a spoil sport, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think you're right with treasure of the Sierra Madre. You can kind of trace that through, you know, what the type of movie that became the blockbuster 40 years later. And, um, but you know, there's, there's influences in, from the red shoes in, in everything, whether it's, you know, obviously like Scorsese's biggest to just sort of even his imitators who probably don't even know that they're, you know, what they're cribbing from him and they're, he took from this. So, well, you'd mentioned recommendations. So what, what are you thinking? All right. Uh, so, I, I th- for Treasure of the Sierra Madre, for we've already talked about it. I think if you haven't seen *The Five Bloods* yet, um, it's 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 a lot of fun. I think uh, it's surprising in ways I wasn't expecting, and you know, there's a lot going on. Um, I've I've been watching a lot of Spike Lee's films the last couple of months, and you know, I don't think all of it works for me, but I think it's it's I think uh, Delroy Lindo's performance is great. He's always great, but this is. I'm not the first one to point out that this is a, a, a particular highlight uh, in a career full of them. And it has that, like I said, it has that kind of MacGuffin from um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's going to be a Spike Lee hat trick. The Red Shoes, I'm going to recommend Spike's first movie. Uh, she's got to have it. Okay. Because uh, this was the first thing I thought of because I when I watched that recently, so it's it's a small indie black and white a lot of talking heads you wouldn't think the red shoes would be uh, an influence but there is a dance sequence in the middle of she's got to have it where suddenly 
uh, he's shooting in color and it's moving around and very dynamic in ways that the the camera hasn't been for the previous half of the movie and isn't again for the rest of it but it's you know that it's got that same type of energy and surprise to it and uh, i think those you know being his first and most recent um narrative feature i think uh good bookends and you know i don't know if i can make a logical connection between uh, Hamlet and Malcolm X, but you know, there's a betrayal at the end and it's, it's really long. <laughs> Excellent. I like that. Yes. I'm going to recommend this movie by Michael Powell. So he did this on his own outside of uh, em- Emmerich Pressburger. Uh, and this movie is called Peeping Tom. Have you heard of Peeping Tom? I've heard of Peeping Toms. I've never heard of the movie Peeping Tom. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, um, uh, it's like Psycho. It's like early De Palma. It's it's a it's a ser- it's like a serial killer movie from 1960. So it predates a lot of that stuff, and it's way ahead of its time, like like the Red Shoes. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating, and weird, and uh, Moira Shira is also in this. Super weird. Uh, it was ahead of its time. Uh, critics hated it because they thought it was too nasty, too prurient. Um, which probably goes to show that it's it's great. <laughs> um, and then for, obviously, like, uh, I think you had mentioned um, Maltese Falcon, but it is a pretty fantastic John Huston movie with another great Bogart performance. Um, he also did Key Largo, uh, which is, um, st- that which stars uh, Lauren Bacall, uh, another kind of sweaty, Florida set uh, crime thriller kind of thing. That one is also written by uh, John Huston. He also did uh, The African Queen, which is another Bogart movie with um, Catherine Hepburn, which is uh, an, sort of an uh, adventure movie where they're, they're stuck on this boat uh, going down this African river uh, and trying to survive. Uh, it's pretty cool. That came out nice. in 51. Uh, and then, like I had mentioned up front, um, Throne of Blood, by uh, Kira Kurosawa is just a fantastic adaptation of Macbeth. It has probably one of the greatest endings I've ever seen. I was just totally floored. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Uh, And and like you had said, um, that doesn't happen too often, but it's just great connection of acting with, because it stars Tashiro Mifune. Uh, He plays the Macbeth stand-in. Uh, but the ending has just these beautiful visuals and a couple of moments that I have no idea how they pulled off. Um, so yeah, Throne of Blood. What are we talking about next time? Uh, next time we are catching me up on Fiona Apple. Yeah, we're going to talk about the album When the Pawn. Um, that's like an, uh, an abbreviation of the full title, which is actually a poem. Uh, I don't have the poem memorized, so I'll make sure to have that handy next time because uh, it's interesting to name your album after a, a full poem. Have you started listening? Uh, yeah, not to that one. Uh, what's what's her first record? Title? Yeah, Ti- Title. Yeah, I've been, so I've been listening to Title a bit. Uh, actually, I did, we, we did put uh, When the Pawn on in the car the other day. The boys chatted through some of it, so... Uh, you know, it was more of a background listen, but um, Sandra's very excited. She was a big uh, Fiona Apple fan. Oh, cool. Is is currently, but like in high school especially, was really sure. um, 
you know, there's a, a formative artist for her. Uh, yeah. And this is, you know, this is, we'll, we'll get into why this is a gap for me, but, uh, I'm excited just to talk about, you know, this, this, this is an easy like for, like, I know I'm going to enjoy this based on what I've listened to already. And uh, this is one that feels obvious and I'm kind of, I'm excited to sort of talk about how people are turned on to or discover music because that, that eluded me for a while. I have a pretty fun story about the first time I heard this record too. So nice. Um, I'm a big Fiona Apple fan and I think I had recommended this album on a previous episode. Uh, we had, we've mentioned Fiona Apple in the past. Uh, I know on our, our best of the 2010s, um, yeah, it came Best out. music of the 2010s. Or, or was it, or maybe our end of year wrap up or something? Because yeah. her album Well, her new album, year, yeah. But her previous album made it in the top 10 of the best of the the 2010s. The, Id- the I- Idler Wheel, that's also, that album is also a poem. The title of that <laughs> one is also a po- poem, I believe. Um, yeah, but... It's abbreviated to Idler Wheel. So she only has five albums. She takes forever to put them out, but that's fine with me when they're as good as they are. Cool. So yeah, should be should be a fun one. Enjoy that stuff quite a bit. Nice. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. We'll see you then. Okay. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.